Good morning, everybody, and how lovely to see you. Hi. So, good morning. Thank you. <laughs> so, are you sitting comfortably? Well, if so, I'm going to begin, because today I'm going to tell you a story, a story of sex and violence and intrigue. Maybe you didn't come to church expecting that this morning, but it's a story from the past, but it resonates. It's got some points we're going to pull out for today. It's a story about a king who was in charge of a large empire. And, you know, he threw two huge parties to demonstrate his splendor and his wealth. And, in fact, these were pretty full-on parties because they went on for over six months. I don't know if you've ever been to a party that's lasted maybe overnight or maybe 24 hours or maybe you've had a weekend away celebrating someone's 40th birthday or something like that. But a party for six months, that is pretty full-on. This very rich king was looking to impress people and to show his splendor and his greatness. Now, the rich king, as you can expect, had a queen. Let's call her Vicky. She was a very beautiful woman, and the king wanted to show her off at his party, a bit like a kind of trophy wife. But Queen Vicky decided that she didn't want to be shown off in front of the king, and she refused to come. And this was a huge deal. This made the king really furious, and he burned with anger. Anyone felt that kind of emotion when something's happened that you didn't want to happen? You burn with anger. No one's going to admit to that this morning, are they? But hey. So Vicky lost her role as queen, and this king had to find another queen. And he gathered together beautiful women from far and wide for a kind of beauty pageant. And each woman had some preparation and then had a night with the king to see which one of them pleased him most. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds really distasteful for me. In our culture, that's smacks of sex slavery about these women being brought from all over the place to spend a time with this fella. But that's what it happened. And enter from the side a lady, a lady called Ella. She was a woman of faith. She was an orphan. She'd been adopted by her older cousin, we'll call him Mick. And she was very beautiful and very lovely. And you guessed it, she won the king's heart. Woo! And she was made queen. But Mick told her not to tell anybody about her faith. Now Mick, the queen's cousin, just happened to be in the right place at the right time to overhear a plot to kill the king. He told Ella, she passed on the message, the king was saved and the assassins were not. And enter from the side of stage a very evil, almost cartoonish villain. Boo. You can almost hear his evil laugh. Now, why don't you turn to your neighbour and give an evil laugh? <laughs> Come on, you can do better than that. <laughs> it's behind you. <laughs> you can always hear his evil laugh and see him kind of twiddle his moustache. We're going to call this guy Harry. He was the most powerful official in the empire. He was proud of his position and he wanted everybody to know the job he had. And in fact, he got the king to set up, to actually make a law to make sure that as he walked past, people would bow down and would honour him in public. Now, he got really cross when Mick, the queen's cousin, refused to acknowledge him publicly. And this riled him so much, he decided not only to do something about Mick and get rid of him, but actually wipe out Mick's entire family and his entire community. He actually prepared for a genocide. He got the king's go-ahead, he put a date in the diary, nearly a year ahead, and he got everybody ready for it. Mick and the community of faith were obviously distraught about this. They wailed, there was mourning, there was fasting, and they were in despair. Intense grief caught them all because of what was going to happen. They knew there was a date in the diary when they were all going to die. 
Now, Queen Ella found out about this in the palace, and Mick, her cousin, asked her to go to the king and to beg for mercy, to turn this situation around. And she said, hey, look, it's not that easy. There are rules about this kind of thing. There are rules about who can go and talk to the king. If I go to him without him asking me to come, then he's going to kill me. And these weren't just kind of loose words, but that's actually what used to happen. Queen Ella was really aware of her position. So if we said already she had been an orphan, she was an orphan. She actually was a woman of faith, but she'd hidden her faith, so she'd lied to her husband. And she'd seen what had happened to Queen Vicky before her. She was in a really vulnerable position. But Mick said, look, if you don't speak up now, you are going to be in big trouble. Our nation is going to be rescued one way or another. But if you keep quiet, you and your relatives are going to die. Now, the story turns on a very famous line that maybe you've heard. And the line is this. Who knows that if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this? Because this is, of course, a story from the Bible, which you may know. It's the story of Queen Esther. I changed the names to protect the innocent or whatever. And so let's go back to their proper names. Queen Esther, in that moment, had to make a decision. She made a hugely courageous decision. She decided to stand up and to be counted. She decided to use the position that she had, the place that she'd been put, to speak out not just for herself, but on behalf of her nation, the Jews, who were at that time voiceless. And she cooked up this really clever plan. You can read it in the Bible, in the book of Esther. She invited the king and the evil villain, Harry, or his proper name is Haman, boo, as he came twiddling moustache, invited them to come to these two big banquets. And when they came, the king, in between the banquets, there was this one banquet, and then the king went to bed that night and couldn't sleep and remembered about... Queen Esther's cousin, whose actual name was Mordecai, the one who heard about the plot to kill the king, and the one who actually was never kind of honoured or awarded for that. And so Haman, the baddie, showed his true colours. And in the end, through some twists and some turns that are well worth reading, he ended up being put to death rather than the queen's cousin Mordecai. Esther and the Jewish nation were saved. Mordecai became prime minister. Hooray! And several people got impaled on spikes. (laughs) Now, I think this really dramatic story of blood and guts has actually got some things to speak to us today. The book of Esther, you just had a really short kind of summary of it, is an unusual book to have in the Bible. It doesn't mention God, which sounds really weird for a book in the Bible. It doesn't really mention praying. It doesn't mention God intervening in any particular way or people having words or messages from God. There is a lot of drinking, sex, violence, and murder. And Esther and Mordecai, who are kind of the heroes of the story, are not great moral examples. They break Jewish laws, they compromise, and they don't live according to God's ways. But they are examples of trust and hope when things get really bad. This book is only 10 chapters long. I sat down to read it this week, and I timed myself, and it took me 25 minutes And so if you haven't read it, why don't you go home and have a cup of tea this afternoon or sometime this week and just open it up and read it for yourself and find out how many people do get impaled on spikes. And if you want to find it, open your Bible in the middle, you'll find the Psalms and just turn left and it's just there. But there are some key things that I think we can pull from this story. And the first one is a point that I read 
from a commentary, and it ties in what, with what Nigel has been talking about in Job over the past couple of weeks. And that is the truth that God's absence, sorry, God's silence doesn't mean his absence. God's silence doesn't mean his absence. You know, I was chatting to someone at the hairdressers the other day and she had sciatic pain down her leg and she'd been to the doctors and they couldn't help and they'd referred her to a specialist so that she could have some investigations about her back and things. And she was waiting to be seen. And I asked her how bad the pain was and she said, it's either seven or eight out of ten, it feels pretty bad and it's quite continuous. And so I asked if I could pray for her and she said, I do pray sometimes, but I think I've got God's deaf ear. And she explained that she has some huge health challenges in her family. Her um, husband has cancer. And she didn't be, seem to be seeing any changes when she prayed. And I don't know whether you've had that experience, whether you, where you've been praying for a situation or for a loved one and not getting the answer that you longed for. It is common for many of us. Well, I offered to pray for her or pray with her and I quickly thank God for her and for how much he loves her and I commanded the pain to go and I didn't make a big deal about it I didn't kind of lay hands on her um, but the hairdressers did seem to go quiet for a couple of minutes <laughs> but afterwards she kind of wiggled around a bit and then she said oh I think that's a bit better thanks and so I got back to my reading and then after a few minutes she leant over and she said the pain's completely gone and, you know, I was actually reading about Esther at the time, and this phrase in the commentary just jumped out at me, and I shared it with her. God's silence doesn't mean his absence. He loves you in the middle of this really painful family situation that you're in. And I believe this little touch of that pain going is just a sign to you that he's there and he's with you. And, you know, there are times when we pray and pray, and when we long and long for God to move, and we don't see change. We heard this week of someone within our church family whose brother has just died really suddenly, completely out of the blue. And that's a really painful and shocking situation. And in those times, it can make us feel that at best, God is a bit deaf. And at worst, he doesn't care or he isn't there. And that's what Nigel's been talking about over the past couple of weeks as we've looked at the book of Job in the Bible. And if you've missed those talks, you can listen to them via the website. The reality is there is huge pain and suffering in the world and in many of our lives. And God doesn't step in and fix it all in the way that we would like often. And sometimes it can feel like he's absent. But the Bible reminds us of a very different story. If you've got your Bible, why don't you turn to Deuteronomy 31 verse 6. Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not panic before them. For the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. The Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you or abandon you. And so it doesn't mean that trouble isn't going to come. But we're reassured that God won't leave us. And then there's quite a familiar passage that we often hear at Christmas, which is in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 23. Oh, no, it's not. Somebody's moved it. 
It's Matthew 1, chapter 23. It's a good job I checked. I hope you're checking. Did anyone find it wasn't there? Anyone look and go, ooh. No, you haven't told me what the verse is yet, have I? The verse is, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. What an incredible name for God. What incredible truth. You know, the, great, the names of God describe who he is. And he is Emmanuel, God with us. And we love and serve a God who promises that he's not far off. There are times and seasons when we know him closely and others when he seems distant. But his promise is that he's with us and he keeps his promises. And so as we've heard from Nigel, God helps Job in that book understand a bigger perspective in the world around him. He helps him understand that God's working behind the scenes to limit the chaos. God is big enough to take our confusion and our doubts and our questions and he's with us in it. And the story of Esther tells a similar picture. The story of Esther and the Jews shows that God is still working in the mess of human history behind the scenes. He's working with what seem like coincidences. Like, do you remember Haman who overheard about that plot? And then that ended up later in the story to be the thing that actually saved him. And there are also some really dramatic changes in the story. And if you want to find out some more, the Bible Project have a great nine-minute video which helps you oversee the picture of this book and what it looks like. So I recommend that you'd have a look at that. But the first point I wanted to make is that God's silence in a situation doesn't mean his absence. The second thing that struck me about this book is about the importance of fasting. When the Jews were about to die, they fasted. That's in Esther 4, verse 16. And fasting is intentionally going out without food for a spiritual purpose. It's not missing a meal to lose weight or because you're too busy to eat. But it's going without food so that you can put God first. And so when we fast, we take extra time to worship or to pray and to listen to what God says. And there's fasting throughout the Bible. So Nehemiah fasted when he wanted to confess the sins of the Jewish nation at a different time. David fasted when he wanted God to intervene miraculously. We've heard that Mordecai and the Jews fasted when they heard that they were going to be wiped out. The early church fasted when they had big decisions to make. Jesus fasted. He went into the wilderness for 40 days before he started his ministry. Fasting is a way of showing that we long for more of God. And so if your spiritual life is in a bit of a rut, you're feeling a bit apathetic, then I encourage you, why don't you try fasting? You could miss a meal and instead worship. Put on a worship CD or sing along to some songs and maybe look at your Bible and pray some of the prayers of the Bible. I found this wonderful prayer this morning. It's in Philippians 3 verse 10 and it says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I didn't know the guys were going to be singing that song today, Show Your Power. But if you want to see God's power at work in our lives, in our nation, where we need to see that, don't we? And in our families and communities, then we can ask God to come and move in. And we don't fast to prove how great we are, but to say, God, we are vulnerable and inadequate without you. We need you. We miss you. We long for more of you. And we're serious. That's why we're giving up something to focus on you for a bit. And you know, we were talking in the office this week, and I just said, I don't feel like I'm very good at fasting. But one thing I find helpful is if I miss a meal, my tummy rumbles. And that rumbling reminds me 
that I'm hungry for more of God. Actually, I'm physically hungry, but really the truth is I actually want more of God. And that's a reminder to keep coming back to him during the day. And so if you haven't tried it, and medically it's okay for you, I encourage you to give it a go. Give up something this week. It could be a meal, or some people give up things like social media or TV. Some people don't give up everything. And I put in my notes, you might want to give up certain foods, but I say to my kids, no, I don't mean give up vegetables for the week. But it might be that you choose to eat more simply. You know, um, Daniel fasted and gave up delicacies. He didn't eat meat and he didn't eat kind of, you know, well, (laughs) wouldn't have eaten sugar and those kind of things if those were available, but ate kind of vegetables and ate simply so that he could spend more time focusing on God and yet still carry on with the work of the day. Because I know some people, I've got a really good friend and his blood sugar um, just dips if he doesn't eat. And so he has to have something, so juices or something. He can't give up everything, but he's still keen to have some time to focus and pray in a particular way. So this isn't a trendy eating plan. And if you are fasting, then think about what you're going to do when you're not eating. And sometimes I go for a walk and pray. And in September, we're actually going to have a time of resetting some of the rhythms and practices of ourselves as kind of individual followers of Jesus and within the church family. And we're going to encourage fasting to be part of that. So why don't you give it a go over the summer sometime? So at two points, God's silence doesn't mean his absence. And secondly, fasting is important. The third thing that I saw from this story is that we actually, as followers of Jesus, have power to bring change. Esther was an orphan. She was a Jew and she was a woman. And in that society, she didn't have a lot of control over her destiny. And yet she woke up to the fact that she was in a unique position, a place that God had put her and God could use her. And she made a choice to stand up and be counted You know, we can all make that choice wherever it is that God's put us. He might have put you in a family. He might have put you in a particular neighborhood or a place of work. If you're a follower of Jesus, his spirit lives within you and he loves the world around you and wants to use you and me to share that love with other people. And you know, here we talk a lot about being scattered servants. We're people who want to bring God's hope and life wherever we go telling people about the good news of Jesus and showing it in practical ways. Whether that's praying for someone with sciatica, whether that's helping in our community or in the workplace. Becca, who works with us in the office, told us a great story this week about a friend of hers who lost his job. That's not the good bit, it gets better. And it was really stressful. He was the main breadwinner for his family, he had kids, and they didn't know where the next money was going to come from. And yet over a period of weeks, every time that they went shopping, somebody from their um, church community met them at the supermarket and paid for their shopping bills. And this became an incredible story for them to share with the the friends around them about God's provision through his people, the church. We can all make a difference and share God's love wherever we are. Now some of you have read um, many of this book, Hands up if anyone's seen Scattered Servants. Alan Scott, we had a, f- a number of folk read that already. Yeah, a few of you. Or not, not as many as I thought. Some of you have. Um, this is a book that really impacted me about showing how just ordinary people um, within the UK are putting this into practice and living as Scattered Servants. And actually, I've got a dozen of these books to give away. And so if you would like some reading over the summer and you'd like one of these books in a moment when I say, you can stick your hand up, you can have one. And the deal about it is if you would like a free book, then you're going to say that you're going to read it, and then you're going to come and tell me when you've read it what it was that impacted you most about it. Okay, so would anyone like a free book? Paul, do you mind giving them out? First 12 hands would be great, this one here. 
there are more than 12 hands going up. Perhaps I should put another proviso on the end. So when you've read it, you've actually got to give it away to somebody else as well. <laughs> Let's do a recycling project. Just whilst they're giving that, I want to tell you about another story about a friend of ours um, called Jake. He's a teacher. He really cares for the community that he lives in. That's why he's chosen to be in a particular school. But the school's not in an easy place. I mean, like a lot of schools, there are financial pressures there. In his school in particular, there are huge behaviour challenges and there's some real kind of relational problems between some of the staff. Now, Jake was, we saw him back in April and he was really worn out and deflated about his work environment. And he actually said, I think I've given my best shot there and I think I'm going to have to leave. And Nigel reminded him that God had put him there. Um, we knew the story about how he got the job and it was a God story. God had put him there. And so suggested that he actually write a letter to his head teacher. So Jake went away and actually he said that he prayed and he fasted because he wanted this letter to be kind of not full of his stuff but actually full of um, kind of truth and be helpful to the head. And he wrote his letter, a letter and in the letter he said, look, I really love this school and I love this community but I've seen some things that I think are real challenges and problems and I'm not coming to moan and criticise. I've got some ideas about how we could work together and change things. And he expected that to be the end. He expected to give the letter and say thanks very much and to go and get a new job. And we saw him recently, and he said, actually, when the head read the letter, he took it away and said, I'd like to think about this, please. And he read the letter, and he came back and said, thank you for taking the time to do this, because I know that you're not moaning, I know that you've got my back. And I'm actually thinking about how I can do some changing and some restructuring to put into place some of the things that you've suggested. And so Jake was somebody who decided that he was going to put his money where his mouth is, in the community where God had put him. So God's silence doesn't mean his absence. Fasting is important, and we have power to bring change. And then the last point that I kind of pulled out of this story is that what we, affect, what we believe affects how we live. I've been thinking a little bit recently about our belief systems, and I read somewhere, your belief system is the invisible force behind your behaviour. What we believe affects how we act. If we believe that God has a deaf ear, like that lady at the hairdressers, we'll stop, sorry, we'll stop speaking to him. And perhaps you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, I couldn't write a letter to my boss, or I don't have enough money to help a neighbour who hasn't kind of, can't afford their groceries, or God couldn't use me. Then I wonder whether or not maybe your beliefs are, beliefs are just a little bit out of line. I've recently become more aware about how what I believe affects the way that I live. I've been going to Slimming Worlds and I've lost a little bit of weight, but I know a number of people who have done really well getting healthier via Slimming World. Now, I'm not endorsing them. There are plenty of other dietary and health programs available if you would choose to look at those. But actually, I was just thinking about it and wondering, well, look, why haven't I done so well? And I realised, actually, it's in my head. If I don't really believe that I can lose weight, then when I feel hungry and I'm faced with a piece of cake, I think, well, I didn't lose any weight last week. That probably means I'm not very good at losing weight. That means we feel pretty rubbish. Oh, there's a piece of cake. I like cake. When I eat cake, it makes me feel better. Hmm, I think I have a piece to cheer me up. And then guess what? I go back to the weigh-in next week and I haven't lost any more weight. What I believed, I'm not really good at this, affected how I felt. I felt really fed up. And that affected what I did. 
ate cake. And the result was I reinforced my bad belief and I proved to myself that last week I wasn't very good at losing weight. But recently I've just started to think, well, what if I were to change my beliefs? What if I were to believe that God made my physical body, that he actually wants me to be a healthy weight for my height? If I'm hungry, I've actually got the power to make healthy choices rather than just eat cake. And if I'm low, God is the one who wants to comfort me rather than sugar. How might that affect my behaviour? Oh my goodness, now I know that. I've got to choose what to do with it, haven't I? But the same is true for all of us in different situations. We believe things about ourselves and that affects those around us and it affects what we do. Maybe we believe the Bible is just too hard to understand so we don't ever read it. Maybe we believe that our neighbour wouldn't be interested in God and so we don't invite him to Alpha in the autumn. Maybe we believe that if we shared Jesus with a colleague, they'd reject us. Now obviously these beliefs come from somewhere. They could be from past experiences, they could be traumas or hurts that we've had. They could be things that, they, that people have said to us. But often I think they're actually based on a lie rather than the truth. In John 8, chapter 44... Jesus is talking. Just going to pull that one up. So John in the New Testament, chapter 8. Verse 44. Jesus is talking about the devil and he said he was a murderer from the beginning. He's always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, it's consistent with his character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And Jesus says of himself, I am the truth. And so the enemy is always on the prowl looking for his next victim. If we're trying to follow Jesus, he's going to do what he can to spot our weaknesses and to tell us lies to reinforce those weaknesses. But here's a powerful thing. A lie is just, there's a movie we know, a lie is just a lie is just a lie. Which movie is that? In Nativity, have you seen that film? It's about when someone, never mind, long story, great movie, go and see it but it's a little phrase we have around our house. A lie is just an untruth until we choose what we do with it. And if we hear a lie, we can go, oh, that's rubbish, that's just a lie. Or we can accept it and take it on board as if it's the truth. We can choose whether or not we disagree with it or actually whether we're going to take it on board and partner with it and own it. And if we do, then it becomes part of our belief system. And so some people would call this an ungodly belief. So there's a lie and then we take it on board and agree with it and it becomes part of our belief system. But it's ungodly because it doesn't line up with what God says about us. God says that we're chosen. He says we're loved. He says we're precious. He says we can trust him. We can rely on him. He says he is at work and he's always at work for the good of the world he made and he loves. And I was thinking about the story of Esther and how Queen Esther may have been thinking in her circumstance. Perhaps she was thinking, I am powerless to do anything in this situation. Look, I got into this place not by my own kind of choosing. And here I am, I've got a whole load of history. I did tell a lie to the king. If I go to him now and fess up that I'm actually a Jew and ask him to do something, that could be the end of me. She's afraid. She thinks they're all going to be wiped out. She thinks they're doomed. But in Esther 4.14, Mordecai speaks and says, look, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will come from some other place. 
Because Mordecai knew the truth. The truth throughout the Bible is that God doesn't let his people down. That God won't let his people be completely wiped out. And so acting on that truth, Esther chose to make a choice. I was thinking about Haman, that baddie. I wondered what kind of thing he was working out of. Maybe he, you know, he said everyone needs to bow down to me, otherwise I'm going to get really cross. Everyone needs to show me how important I am. What lie could he have been believing? Maybe it's the lie that value and worth come from what other people think about me. Whereas actually God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And so what I'd like us to do, just for a few minutes, is just think a little bit about whether there are any particular lies that we are believing in this moment. It may be that all your belief systems are, are kind of lined up with what the truth of God says. And if that's the case, that's a wonderful place to be. But oftentimes, there are some ways where our thinking is just a bit out of line. And when we recognize what those lies are, then it's a really straightforward, I wouldn't say easy, but it's a straightforward process to be able to combat them. Because what we need to do is we need to acknowledge that we have been believing a lie. Maybe for Haman it's saying, I'm sorry God for believing the lie that my value and worth comes from what other people think. And then, it's an opportunity for us to forgive. We can forgive ourselves for believing that. We can ask God to forgive us for the way that we haven't believed his truth. And sometimes there are other people that we need to forgive. So maybe Haman had really pushy parents who just said every time, you know, you have to, um, you have to succeed, you have to deliver, you have to perform. And that's where he got the idea that value and worth came from what people thought about him. And so sometimes we have to forgive people, forgive in situations where we have been kind of exposed to these lies. Then we can receive God's forgiveness and choose not not to live this way going forward. And then the really powerful thing comes when we actually decide what the truth is and we ask God to show us, what is your truth for me in this situation and in this place? Maybe a truth for Haman could be, I have loved you with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I've drawn you to myself. And those truths are specific for each of us. You can accept and believe that truth and ask God to live the right way going forward. And where the rubber hits the road is what am I going to do when I have that conversation in my head again that my value and my worth comes from what people say. I need to show people what I'm doing so they can actually kind of think that I'm great. Or if so-and-so doesn't turn and, and smile at me on a Sunday morning, then they're obviously dissing me. Or whatever the situation is. And just having that truth kind of in our pocket or in our mind or in our heart so that we can chew on that and remember what the truth of the situation is. So are you up for it? Should we try this now? Yeah? No? <laughs> Let's have a go at lie busting. Why don't, why don't we do that? I'm going to invite you to close your eyes for a minute. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And we're trusting that God speaks to us. And that he knows us and loves us. And so, dear Holy Spirit, you're so welcome here and we'd love your work to heal us up and to make us more like Jesus so that you can send us out to share his love and life with those around us. We just invite you to come and speak to us now and show us if there are lies that we're believing today. 
I'm just going to pause now quietly and in the quiet, just see what comes to mind. If nothing comes to mind, it's not a stress, but maybe God's going to highlight something to you. Maybe for you it's similar to Haman, what I think Haman was thinking, you know, that my value and worth comes from what other people think of me. Or maybe you, like me, have been thinking, I just can't lose weight, can't do this. Or maybe you think when you need comfort, I've got to turn to sugar or porn or drink. If you're struggling, think of something. We've all, you know, Paul's often said to us, any situation that doesn't glisten with hope is based on a lie. So maybe just think of a situation in your life or your family which just feels like there's no hope here. And ask the Lord what the lie is there. So if you have something in your mind, the first thing to do is just acknowledge it. And then say, sorry to God for believing that lie. I'm sorry, God, for believing that my value and worth comes from what other people think of me. Or whatever it is for you. Maybe you know where that's come from. And now's just an opportunity for, to forgive if you had particular parents or a boss or friends or family who've contributed to making this a reality in your life. I choose to forgive my mum. my dad, my friend. And the next thing to do is to ask God to forgive you for living based on that lie. So Father, forgive me for partnering with that, for agreeing with that lie. receive God's forgiveness the Bible says if we confess our sin we're faithful God is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so just receive his forgiveness thank you Lord and then choose to forgive yourself And 
and choose that you're not going to live in agreement with this lie going forward. And then, dear Holy Spirit, we invite you to show us what the truth is for each one of us. What is the truth instead of the lie that we've been living in accordance with? And just listen to the whisper of your heart. Maybe it's a verse from the Bible that comes to mind. Maybe it's that phrase, God's silence doesn't mean his absence, I'm with you. Maybe it's that truth, I've loved you with an everlasting love. So accept and believe that truth and ask God to help you to live in the light of that on going forward. Dear Holy Spirit, thank you that you're close to us. Thank you that you are our encourager and you remind us of the truth. And for those of us today who might have struggled with this, we ask for your help going forward. And for those who you've shown a truth to, I ask that you would help us replace the truth into the place of the ungodly lie that we were believing. We want to be a healed up people who can take your love and your power and healing to those around us. Amen.